In your name we pray. Amen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. What amazing words. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met, I'm part of the team here and it's uh, wonderful to be together today and to now be able to open up the Bible and hear from God. And this morning we are kicking off a, a new series in the New Testament letter of First Peter that we've called Against the Tide. Now I want you to imagine that you're part of a psychological experiment. You're sitting at the end of a row of, of 10 people and on the screen in front of you, uh, there are two pictures that look like that. I was worried for a second there. Two pictures that look like that and you have been asked to determine which of the A, B or C lines is closest in length to the line on the other picture. Now it's a pretty straightforward task and the answer seems obvious, doesn't it? Line C. But you're surprised to discover that as people begin to announce their answer, everybody is choosing line A. Now, this is clearly wrong, but they all seem so confident. 
Have they seen something that you haven't seen? Do they know something you don't know? What are you going to do? You can either stick to your guns and you can go against the tide of popular opinion, or you can go with the flow and just hope that everyone else is right. What would you do? I suspect that most of us think that we would give the right answer. Maybe you would, but that's easy to say when you're not in the pressure of the situation. And in fact, this scenario that I've just described is one of the most famous experiments in the history of psychology. And what the person on the end of the row doesn't know is that they are the only subject of this experiment. Everyone else is in on it. They're actors and they are purposefully giving the wrong answer. And what this study found was that 75% of the time, or 75% of people, caved to the pressure and gave the wrong answer at least once. Now this tells us something that I think we already know. It's not easy to go against the tide. To stand out. To be different. To be considered weird or, or even wrong. Now, for a long time in our culture, Christians have occupied a kind of comfortable place at the table. We've kind of been an accepted part of the cultural mainstream. Our values have kind of mostly overlapped with the values of others in our community. In fact, to be a Christian 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it meant that you were different, but you weren't too different. You know, you were a little bit strange because you got out of bed on a cold Sunday morning and you came down to church where others slept in. You didn't swear when others did. You didn't see certain types of movies. You were different, but not too different. Today, though, it's becoming a, a different story. The culture has shifted. The mood has changed. And Christians increasingly find themselves being pushed, I guess, further to the margins being forced to swim a little bit harder against the tide. And I know that many of you feel this. I know many of you have experienced this. And I know that many of you have concerns about this. And this is why we are turning to the book of First Peter, starting this new series today called Against the Tide. It's my hope, it's my aim in this series to help us get our heads and our hearts around this changing reality. To help us learn how to respond to our changing times. And 1 Peter is the perfect book to help us do this. 1 Peter is a letter that was written by a man named Peter. Peter, of course, was one of Jesus' disciples. He was the one who walked on water. He denied Jesus three times during his trial. But Peter is now a, a leader in the early church after Jesus has returned to heaven. And he is in Rome. And he's writing a letter to Christians who were in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, these Christians were living in the midst of the Roman Empire, and they were beginning to feel the heat. They were becoming unpopular and they were under pressure. We can kind of gather from the, the letter of 1 Peter that they were being insulted. They were being falsely accused. They were being ridiculed and mocked. And people thought that what they believed and the way they lived was weird and wrong. 
there was a growing hostility towards Christianity in the empire. In fact, in just two years' time from writing this letter, Peter himself would be killed by Nero, the emperor, for his faith in Jesus. And so Peter senses this change and he writes a letter to these Christians to encourage them and to instruct them. And this is what he says at the end of this letter about why he has written it. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. They've taken their stand on the gospel, on the the grace of God, but the pressure is starting to mount. The tide is beginning to turn. And Peter wants them to stand fast and to stay humble. To keep following Jesus even when it's not popular. And this is a message that we need to hear more than ever. In fact, I really believe that God wants to say some significant things to us through this series. I really have a few things on my heart that I want us as a church family to embrace through this series. Number one, let me just tell you what they are. I want, to see, I want us to see our changing cultural reality as an opportunity to be embraced, not a trend to be feared. I don't want us to be a church that looks at what our culture is doing and feels fear and anger. I want us to be a church that looks at who our God is and what our God has done and feels humble joy and hopeful confidence. Number two, I want us to remember that suffering for Jesus is a normal part of following Jesus. I don't want us to be surprised or shocked when things don't go our way. When we find ourselves unwelcome at the table with the powerful and the popular. Number three, I want us to embrace the weirdness and the wonder of real Christianity. Listen, you are not going to fit in. And you have to be okay with that. But you also don't have to be a jerk about it. Because we can be a witness to Jesus, not just through what we say, but also through how we treat others. Number four, I want to drive you back to the Bible to see, so that you'll see how relevant it is for your life. Man, I hope you will really dive into studying 1 Peter in these next couple of months. Number five, I want you to see and to appreciate the importance and the uniqueness of gathering together on a Sunday. And number six, I want all of us to deepen our faith in Jesus and to grow in godliness. These are some of my hopes for this series. This is what I'm praying God will do among us. And this is why I hope that you won't just kind of listen and spectate in, in the next couple of months. I hope that you will join in and participate. I hope that you will grab a growth group guide. Hold on to it. Bring it to church. Take notes. Use it for your devotions. I hope that you will read the letter of 1 Peter and read it again and again and again. I hope that you will let this powerful message really sink into your heart and mind. And I hope that you will make gathering together on Sunday, coming on Sunday, a priority to hear what God has to say to us through this powerful little letter. And so this is where we're going in the next couple of months. And today we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to begin where Peter begins with really, really good news. You see, the first 12 verses of this letter, Peter unpacks for us a beautiful summary of 
Christianity. He gives us a clear and profound explanation of what we call the gospel. The grace of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And this is so helpful because maybe you're not a Christian and and you've thought at some point, well, what do Christians really believe? And is it really good news? We're going to hear what we believe, what Christians believe, and why this morning. Or maybe you're a Christian, but you've started to drift away from Jesus. Your faith has grown a little bit stale and a little bit cold. Well, these verses will be like a shot of gospel caffeine to your soul. They will wake you up to the wonder, the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus. They will show you the really, really good news of the gospel. Now, of course, Christianity is really, really good news for many, many different reasons. But today, I want to look at just four reasons that we see in this passage. Four reasons why Christianity is really, really good news. The first reason that we see in the greeting of this letter is that we belong to the real God. We belong to the real God. Now, when you write a letter or an email, the greeting that you use says a lot about the recipient of your email or letter. So if you write, dear sir or dear madame, that's a formal letter. If you write, to my sweetheart, you know, that's a letter to your husband or to your wife or, or whatever it might be. Well, Peter, he uses two words to address these believers in this letter, in verse 1. He says, to God's elect exiles. He says Christians are both elect and exiles. Now, we are exiles because this world is not our home. We belong to God and we long to be with him. And so in this world that is in rebellion against God, we are like foreigners, refugees. We're passing through, we're outsiders. We don't fit in because we march to a different beat. We take orders from a different source. In fact, I want you to imagine a marching band, massive marching band, and there's a conductor on the platform and everyone's watching him taking their cue from him, except this one guy in the middle. He's got headphones on, and he's listening to Beyonce or something completely different. Now, he's going to look and sound different. And it's the same for a Christian. When you are tuned into God, when you are tuned into someone different, you will look and sound different. And if you're a Christian, I think you know what this feels like. Some of you feel it in your family. Because you're the only Christian in your family. Some of you feel it at work. Because you're left out of certain things or you don't participate in certain conversations. Some of you feel it at university. It honestly feels strange to be a committed Christian on your university campus. Some of you have moved into a new neighborhood and you're trying to work out what does it look like to establish relationships with people who are on a totally different page to you. We are exiles in this world, and like we said at the start, this isn't easy. So how do we cope being exiles in this world? How do we survive as strangers in a strange world? Well, this is where Peter's second E word comes in. Because we are not only exiles, we are also God's elect. Though we are strangers in this world, we are special 
to God. Though we are rejected by this world, we are chosen by God. In fact, this is what Peter says in verse 2. He says that God set his love on us before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now what this means, it's not an accident that you belong to God. It was God's purpose from the very beginning. Not only that, but he has also set us apart through the sanctifying work of his spirit. God has turned us hard-hearted, rebellious sinners into soft-hearted, loved sons and daughters. He's made us alive by his spirit. Not only that, he has saved us by the work of his son on the cross. To be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood, cleansed, forgiven. Now, Peter's point is that we belong to God. And all three persons of the Trinity are involved in bringing us to him. Did you catch that? God the Father chooses. God the Son saves. And God the Spirit transforms. We sang this just a moment ago. Now this is heady stuff, but here's what Peter is saying to these stressed Christians and to you and to me. If you belong to God in this life and in this world, you will experience rejection, ridicule, and maybe worse. You'll be left out of inner circles. You'll be mocked by the popular. You'll be overlooked by the powerful. But you do not need to fear because you will never be rejected by God. If God chose you before the creation of the world, if God set you apart by his spirit, if God saved you by the death of his son on the cross, you can be certain that he will never let you go and he will never let you down. You are part of the greatest inner circle in the galaxy. You are allied to the most powerful person in the universe. You belong to the real God. So who or what can harm you? I mean, in the face of ridicule, rejection and suffering, this truth can give you unshakable confidence. It actually reminds me of the story of John Chrysostom. Now, I've I've told you this story, I think, many times before, but it's just such a powerful example. John was a a leader in the early church in Turkey, actually, and one day he was brought before the empress, Eudoxia, and she warned him that if he kept preaching and talking about Jesus, he is going to be banished from the empire. John replied, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. The empress said, but I will kill you. No, you cannot, for my life is hidden with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, she said. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. John Chrysostom knew that he belonged to the real God and it made him cheerfully unshakable. He was the epitome of verses 8 to 9 that, that Peter said, wrote for us just a moment ago. Talking about Jesus, though you have not seen him. Now remember, Peter had seen Jesus, but these people who he's writing to had not and neither have we. But listen to what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, a cheerful unshakability. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you belong to the real God who really loves you. Who or what can harm you? The gospel is really, really good news because firstly, we belong to the real God. And secondly, because we have the most glorious future. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. That's a pretty bleak outlook on life and and without God, it certainly may be true. But with God, it is woefully inadequate. You see, Peter looks to the future for these Christians and he sees a future that is incredibly bright and unshakably certain. And he says it begins with a new birth. Look at what he says, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now earlier this year, Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor was born. Now I thought my name was a mouthful, but... That's next level. He is the first son of Prince Harry and and Meghan Markle. And he was born into a life of incredible privilege. He did nothing to earn it. He did nothing to deserve it. He was simply born into the royal family along with all of its perks and all of its privileges. And Peter says that when we become a Christian, we are born into the family of God. We did nothing to earn it, we did nothing to deserve it, but we can freely receive it and all of its privileges. And what Peter says in these verses is that the privileges are immense. He says that our new birth begins with a new inheritance. Verse 4. Now an inheritance is simply wealth that will be yours in the future. You don't have it yet, but you will one day. Now if you're a Christian, you stand to inherit everything because you belong to the God who owns everything. I mean, we have a future. We can look forward to a future with real people living in a real creation, freed from all evil and misery, renewed with unimaginable beauty because God will be with us. One commentator says, our future inheritance will not only cause our worst experiences in this life to become distant memories, it will make even the most exotic places on earth and the finest moments of our lives here pale in comparison. Now you might be thinking, well that's all good and well and that sounds incredible, but but how do I know that I'm going to make it to the end? I mean, life is hard. Following Jesus can be difficult. How can I be sure that I won't give up, that I won't fall away, that I won't be disqualified, that God won't give up on me? Well, Peter says that you can be certain you will receive this inheritance because God is guarding it in heaven for you and God is guarding you while you're on earth. Look at verse 4 and 5. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now the word shielded there means to keep watch over. Picture yourself in a fortress. Outside there are evil forces that are trying to get in and get at you, but 
God is watching the perimeter. Now maybe you're thinking, but if God is guarding the perimeter, why is there so many bad things still getting in at me? Has God fallen asleep on the job? Well, we need to remember, we need to ask ourselves, what has God promised to shield us from? And friends, the answer is not pain and suffering. The answer is not trials and difficulties. The answer is the greatest threat to our persevering to the end is unbelief. It's losing our faith in Jesus. But here's what this verse is telling us. No matter how hard your life may become, the God who gave you the gift of saving faith, he will sustain and strengthen your faith until that day when your faith is made sight and you receive your inheritance. If you are a Christian, you have a future that is incredibly bright and absolutely certain. And this gives you unshakable hope in the present. This is what Peter says in verse 3. He says, He has been given us new birth into a living hope. Because we have a future filled with glory, we have a life of hope in the present. And this is far more than just wishful thinking, blind optimism, cross your fingers and I hope it works out. That's how we usually use the word hope, don't we? I hope I get the job. I hope the Broncos learn how to win again. But that's not how Peter, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Peter is saying we can have a rock-solid, certain, living hope because it's tied to a real person and a historical event. It's tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian hope hinges on the resurrection. It's not pie in the sky. It's that we're saying Jesus Christ really was crucified, dead, and buried, and then he really was raised from death. And there is good evidence to to attest to this, and I'd love to point you in the direction of some good sources if you'd want. But here's the point. Our real hope changes everything because it has defeated our real enemies of sin and death. And it gives us living hope because Jesus Christ really is alive. And one day, we too will be made alive with him. Christianity is really, really good news because we belong to the real God. We have the most glorious future. And we have, thirdly, the most precious possession. Now, what is the most precious possession in the world? Some people might suggest gold or diamonds or plutonium. Others might suggest oil or water. Peter would suggest the most precious possession in the world is faith. Real, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he says, it is of greater worth than gold. Now this is really amazing because faith doesn't seem particularly valuable in our world, does it? I mean, lots of people in the world have faith. And actually, in the eyes of the world, faith is seen as something weak or feeble or for deluded people. But in the eyes of God, it is more precious than anything else in all the world. It's kind of like the the TV show, Antiques Roadshow. Now, I found out this week there's a member of our staff that loves this show, and I won't embarrass her by telling you it's Emma. But apparently, locals bring in these items, and they are appraised by antique experts. Now, in 1992, an English priest bought this painting for 400 pounds. A few years down the track, it was spotted by one of the presenters on the T 
TV show and she suspected it might be a genuine Van Dyke painting. And indeed it was, and it was valued at almost 400,000 pounds. And it has since been displayed all over the world. Now you see, at the moment, faith in Jesus is seen a little bit like that painting in 1992. Not worth very much. But there's a day coming when it will be seen for what it really is. There's a day coming when Jesus will return. And all of the things that we work so hard for, chase so hard after, worry about, strive for, our our money and our status and our clothes and so on, they will fade away and they will pass away. But faith in Christ will be seen for what it really is, the most priceless and precious possession in the world. Because only faith in Christ enables us to stand before God to escape judgment and to enter into eternal life. And so Peter's message to these suffering Christians and to you and to me is this, don't give up and don't let go of your faith in Jesus. Suffering will come. You will be grieved by all kinds of trials, but don't let those trials destroy your faith. In fact, if you will trust God in the midst of those trials, they can actually deepen your faith. That's what Peter says in verses 6 to 7. He says, if we hold on to God in the midst of suffering and pain, it actually proves that our faith is real. He compares our faith to gold and suffering to fire. And his point is that fire does not destroy gold if it's real gold. And suffering will not destroy our faith if it's real faith. When trials come, it is the testing ground of our faith. When life is tough, we prove our faith to be real by trusting God in the midst of the pain. But suffering not only proves our faith, it also purifies our faith. I mean, I'm sure you know that when you put gold in the fire, it burns away all of the impurities and it just leaves pure gold. In the same way, God can use our suffering to burn away impurities in our faith, to burn away our self-sufficiency, to burn away our dependence on idols and other things and to help us trust fully on God. And this is why in our moments of difficulty, our moments of confusion, our moments of pain, we need to turn to God, not away from God. You know, John de Hoog is the Old Testament lecturer at the Reformed Theological College in Melbourne, the the college where we send men and women to be trained for ministry. He's a husband, a, a father, and a grandfather, and he was recently diagnosed with bowel cancer. He underwent surgery a couple of weeks ago, and John's prognosis is okay, but it's not great. And in an email I received this week, John said, I feel safe and confident in the Lord. He is good, and he is in charge. Now, there's a man who knows that the most precious possession in the world is his, and not even cancer can take it away from him. Christianity is really, really good news because we belong to the real God, We have the most glorious future. We have the most precious possession. And fourthly and finally, we live in a privileged time. You know, this idea of time travel is is fascinating to many of us. Think about Marty McFly and the Back to the Future trilogy. We, We wonder, what would it be like to live in a different time? And this idea is especially tempting when life is difficult. I'm sure these Christians who Peter was writing to, they would have liked to travel to a time when it wasn't so difficult to follow Jesus. And this is why Peter reminds them and us in verses 10 to 12 that the time we live in now 
is not a time to be escaped, but it's actually a time of incredible privilege. It's a time that the Old Testament authors wrote about and longed to see. You see, the Bible tells one big story, the story of God's abundant grace for undeserving sinners, and it climaxes in Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, this story was only partially told. There were promises made and predictions made. It isn't until we get to the New Testament that these promises are kept and these predictions are fulfilled because Jesus, the promised Messiah, has come. And this salvation that was promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament and now is enjoyed by Christians today all over the globe. We live in a privileged time. In fact, it's so incredibly privileged that not only did the Old Testament authors long to see it, but angels now look down upon it longingly. It's what we were told at the end of verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. I wonder, you've probably thought it would be amazing to be an angel, to be in the throne room of God, to see things from their perspective. But the angels long to see what you see, to know what you know, to experience what you experience. Do you comprehend the privilege of being a saved sinner, of believing the gospel, of knowing Jesus, of being a child of God, of living in this time? I hope you don't think, I wish we could go back 50 years to a time when Christianity and Christian values were more widely accepted. Peter would say, no, no, no. You are exactly where God wants you to be. And he is calling you to serve him today, in this time and in this place. Stop longing for a day in the past and start living for Jesus in the present. Because this is a time of incredible privilege. No matter how hard life may get, no matter how hard oppressive government may become, no matter how discriminatory your workplace may be, no matter how contemptuous the media gets, you are privileged to be alive today. You get to live in a time when salvation is freely available, when God has revealed his rescue plan, when God's promised future has been revealed. Don't spend your time grumbling about how hard things are. Get busy serving God. Don't look down on others. Start doing what you can to reach them. Get involved in God's mission. There's no greater cause in the universe. Start to live and enjoy and share the gospel. There's no greater message in the universe. It's really, really good news from a really, really good God. And so here's the simple call to action today. If you're a Christian, rejoice. Rejoice. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though you will be grieved by all kinds of trials, you have every reason to rejoice and give thanks to God. If you're a Christian and you've been wandering away from God, come back. Do not give up the most precious possession in the world. If you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. There is no other way that you will find true life and living hope. Only in him will you find really, really good news that covers your past, gives you purpose in the present, and glorious hope for the future. Come to him. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We give thanks because of all that you have done for us and given to us in Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have been wandering, Lord, today we come back to you. We don't want to give up the most precious possession in the world for mere trinkets, for temporary pleasures, for things that will not last. And Lord, for those of us who don't know you, I pray by your Spirit that you would set them apart. I pray, Lord, that as they come to you, that they might place their faith and their trust in Jesus, the one in whom our forgiveness and hope is found. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand as we prepare to